I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, August 9th, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, water. Lots of it in outer space. This is the first detection of water from this early in the universe. And which is more likely to cause a heart attack? A fat, juicy steak or low-fat turkey lunch meat? Processed deli meats, low-fat ham, turkey, chicken, processed deli meat, those are actually the more unhealthy options than eating a small, fresh steak. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Many people feel that it's cruel to use laboratory animals to test products for allergic side effects. Whether it's cosmetics that might make skin itchy or cleaning supplies that might produce terrible rashes. Now, research published in Biomed Central's open access journal BMC Genomics demonstrates that human cells grown in the laboratory can be used to classify chemicals as sensitizing or non-sensitizing, and can even predict the strength of allergic response, thereby providing an alternative to animal testing. Carl Borbach of Sweden's Lund University led researchers in this effort. They developed genome-wide profiling measures to measure the response of a human myeloid leukemia cell line to known chemicals. From this, they defined a biomarker signature of 200 genes, which could accurately discriminate between sensitizing and non-sensitizing chemicals. By comparing this signature with the known action of these chemicals, they were also able to use this system to predict sensitizing potency. Borobak says that although this lab-based test is in an early stage of production, in the long run, it may prove to be a faster and more accurate way to test for allergic reactions. And it would be kinder to the animals as well. A student at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland has envisioned an improvement for invisibility cloaks. It's an optical device that would allow the cloak to hide things against changing backgrounds. The Institute of Physics and German Physical Society's New Journal of Physics published the study today, and the lead author, Janos Pertzel, spoke with us about it from Hungary via Skype. He says that, yes, there are real cloaks out there, sort of. It depends what you mean by an invisibility cloak. The sort of stuff you see in Harry Potter films has never been made yet. There have been experiments to kind of test the theory of invisibility, but these experiments always featured invisibility in some reduced form. So far, cloaking has hidden a real palm-sized object, but it only works against a sort of blue screen, background of a single wavelength or color. That's because cloaking conceals an object by bending light around it. Purcell says it's similar to putting a rock in a river, where the water bends around and covers the rock and makes it seem to disappear. But just as water must speed up to hurry around the rock, to bend light for cloaking, light must speed up. Super-speeded light flows too fast for cloaking devices to adjust to changing backgrounds. So Purcell and colleagues envision a cloak that generates an invisibility sphere. The sphere buys enough time for the cloak to adjust to changing backgrounds by, well, what else? Slowing down the normal speed of light. So that all the light speeds that we use in our, that we use in our cloak will be less than the speed of light 
in vacuum so that the cloak we propose here would work for any frequency and would also work against an ever-changing background of uh, multiplicity of colors and, you know, anything. Purcell says he's not keen on the military applications that may come from cloaking science, but he's excited about transformation optics. I'm not sure I would want to talk about the potential military applications because that's not something I'm terribly keen on. Apart from those, this whole invisibility subject is based on transformation optics. That's the key word here, which is tells us how to control light and how to guide it pretty much any way we want to guide it around. This might lead to the birth of incredible optical devices. Even this invisible sphere that we are using, one day you might be able to hold it in your hands. Transformation optics could mean images better than the light that hit the lens. And who knows, maybe someday invisibility cloaks will lead to anti-wrinkle creams and lower production costs in future Harry Potter movies. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for this report. For an extended interview, check our website, howonearthradio.org. You are tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Joel Parker. If nutrition isn't already confusing enough already, uh, Science, Scientific American warned that it's time to end the war on salt. Their report contains some factual errors, and it omitted recent research from science groups who still think too much salt isn't good for health. But it did give an excuse to shake up some thoughts from one of the nation's leading nutrition scientists, who has some strong opinions about what's healthy and what's not, opinions that might not be popular with the American Salt Institute or with the USDA. The researcher is Dariush Mosafarian. Dr. Mosafarian is with the Harvard School of Public Health in the Department of Epidemiology. Current projects include leadership of the Nutrition and Chronic Diseases Expert Group of the Gates Foundation. Here's Shelley Schlender's interview with Dr. Mosafarian. For decades, we've thought that it was the fats in meats that are really adverse for health, but we found actually that fresh meats that were not preserved with salt or with nitrates had very different relationships with risk of heart disease and diabetes than processed meats, and processed meats had much higher associations with risk. And the reason I want to emphasize that is there's actually a big push in this country, Subway is a great example, to push processed deli meats, low-fat ham, turkey, chicken, processed deli meat as healthy options, when in fact I think those are actually the more unhealthy options than eating a small fresh steak. In other words, with deli meat, that may be the issue, not how much fat is in it, but the fact it's been processed. So if I got some just pork belly, a big fat piece of pork belly and ate that, that probably wouldn't increase my heart disease risk or my other health risks. But if I eat a lean piece of processed turkey meat from a deli, that might be an issue. That's what our research suggests. Now, you know, when you start to get to very specific types of individual meats, we don't have the science yet to tell you how does turkey deli meat compared to a pork belly or so forth. But on average, overall, you know, certainly the findings suggest that the processed meats are worse than the unprocessed. I'm not saying that unprocessed meats are good for you. There's healthier choices. So fish, nuts, beans are healthier choices. If you want to reduce your risk, there's even better choices. But at least if you want to choose among red meats or, or meats in general, to choose unprocessed meats. 
And in fact, I believe in your research, it indicated if someone's even eating red meat, such as pork or beef, it doesn't add to their risk. It may not reduce their risk of disease, but it does not add to it. Yeah, we didn't find strong evidence that unprocessed meat intake was related to heart disease or diabetes. Now, there was a trend towards higher diabetes risk. Even unprocessed meats might slightly raise the risk of diabetes. But there are questions about whether or not that's because of the meat being eaten or because people who eat that kind of meat tend to also eat more hamburger buns or they tend to eat more French fries. Absolutely, yeah. So I think, as I said, that needs to be further clarified. But in both our study and subsequent studies, processed meats always have the stronger risk. Clearly, if you're choosing between the two, you know, one should choose an unprocessed meat. Now, the main difference between processed meats and unprocessed meats is preservatives, mostly salt. The mechanism needs further study. Salt is a very likely culprit. The fact that salt has such a strong effect on blood pressure would lead you to believe that salt is a clearly an important risk factor for stroke and likely also for heart disease. What about studies that have actually looked at how salt intake relates to disease events, not just blood pressure? What have those studies shown? In most Western countries, Estimating salt intake from a questionnaire is very poorly done because you can eat a slice of bread that has 75 milligrams of salt and you can eat a slice of bread that has 450 milligrams of salt. And there's no way to tell from the questionnaire which type of slice of bread you ate. You can eat some cheese, mozzarella cheese, that has 50 milligrams of salt and you can eat cheese that has 400 milligrams of salt. So estimating salt intake from a questionnaire is very problematic. As most dietary studies are in that people aren't precise in how they measure what they do. No, no, there's a big difference between sodium and other dietary factors. You can estimate dairy intake well, you can estimate meat intake well, you can estimate fruit and vegetable intake well, but salt in Western countries, it's in processed and packaged foods in wildly varying amounts. It's very hard to estimate. Oh, because it's so hidden. I should just contrast that to there's been several studies in Asian countries, in China or Japan or similar countries, where in those countries, salt is not coming in the diet from processed and packaged foods. It's coming from soy sauce, or salt added at the table. So since the sources are limited, it's just, do you add it at the table? Do you add it from soy sauce? The estimates are actually quite good. In those studies, uh, consistently, estimated dietary intake from the diet was associated with higher risk of stroke. When you take people who have that genetic background, being Japanese, and they move to the United States and start eating the American diet, does their risk of stroke go down? Japanese Americans do not have the same high risk of stroke. Once they're eating the American diet, they have risk of other things, but not stroke. Exactly. So they get risk of all the other bad things, but their stroke risk looks more like the average American. When we talk about excess salt and how that may affect health, could it be that part of the problem is whether there's a balance between the salt and other things such as magnesium and potassium. And if we increase these other nutrients that tend to appear with salt in natural foods, we wouldn't have such problems. It's clearly demonstrated um, both from trials and from observational studies that if you increase potassium in the diet, and potassium mostly comes from from fruits and vegetables and whole, whole grains, if you increase potassium in the diet, you'd blunt the effects of salt. Also, if you just eat a generally healthier diet, even salt added at the table is only probably on average about 10% of the salt in the U.S. diet. 80 to 90% of the salt in the U.S. diet comes from processed and packaged foods where it's used as a preservative. And it's bread, it's cheese, uh, it's meats, it's ready-prepared dinners and canned foods and things like that. And what's ironic is, you know, if we wanted to reduce salt, all we would have to do is just reduce our expectations for the shelf life of products. I mean, it is not natural to buy bread 
and leave it out on the counter for two weeks and have it not go bad. And we just spent some time in Italy, and we would buy bread in Italy. And within one or two days, if you haven't eaten your bread, it goes stale or, or it goes bad because it doesn't have that much salt. So I think that we need to readjust our sort of expectations for preservation of food. We don't need to adjust our expectations for taste. I mean, we can still put salt on the food. Another great example is potato chips and, and nuts. People think of those as salty foods, but the amount of salt per serving in a potato chip or a nut is much, much less than in bread because it's just on the surface. It's just giving us that extra bang of taste, and I think that's okay. Perhaps we should remind listeners that you think nuts are pretty healthy, but you really don't think potato chips are all that healthy. The major beneficial ingredient in the potato chip is the vegetable oil, and the vegetable oils are good for you, but starch, you know, starch and salt are each not good for you. Now, you know, should somebody never eat potato chips? No, I mean, I think that occasional potato chip once or twice a week in a small serving is probably okay, but large servings of potatoes and other starches and refined carbohydrates are not good for risk of diabetes or heart disease. And you'd think that perhaps we could have more saturated fat and fat in school lunches, and that might be good for kids. So, no, I don't think I've ever said that I'm a fan of saturated <laughs> fat. You know, a point I've, that I think is really important is we're learning in nutritional science that most single nutrients alone, focusing on just that can be misleading. And I think there are two exceptions, salt and trans fat. But other than salt and trans fat, I think focusing on single nutrients alone can be misleading. And in the case of saturated fat, dairy foods on average are not associated with higher risk of heart disease. They contain saturated fat. Unprocessed meats are unassociated or maybe have a, a, a small association. And processed meats have a very strong association. All of them have saturated fat. So just making a decision based on saturated fat alone, you, you might be misled. Similarly, People are choosing baked potato chips for their low-fat cookies or breads because they are low in saturated fat, whereas they're full of starches that are harmful for use. As an exclusive focus, just looking at the grams of saturated fat on the label and making a decision about the healthfulness of a food, you're going to be misled. You know, we have in this country for 20 or 30 years had a focus on saturated fat in the media and in the public, but I think we need to move away from an exclusive focus on saturated fat. I don't think saturated fat is good for you, but I think that it's not the biggest problem in the diet. I think the biggest problem in our diet is what we're not eating. We're not eating fruits. We're not eating vegetables. We're not eating nuts. We're not eating fish. We're not eating whole grains. We're not eating vegetable oils. By not eating those things, we're causing problems to our health. And so I think focusing on saturated fat alone doesn't tell the person the right message about what they should be doing to change their diet. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. Dr. Dariush Mosafarian is with the Harvard School of Public Health in the Department of Epidemiology. If you'd like an extended version of that interview and links to other talks by this Harvard nutrition expert, email us at science at kgnu.org or visit our website, howonearthradio.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. Water. It's essential to life on Earth. So when astronomers turn their telescopes skyward, they are particularly interested in any hint of water elsewhere in the universe. There have been recent headlines about potential sources of water ice on the moon and new evidence that there could be liquid water flowing on Mars. These are truly exciting discoveries. But what else is out there? Could there be water, say, at the far side of the universe? Well, late last month, an international team of astronomers announced exactly that. An enormous cloud of water vapor hanging in space 12 billion light-years away. 
Here to tell us more about it is Jason Glenn, Associate Professor of Astronomy at CU Boulder, who is one of the principal investigators on this discovery. Jason Glenn, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you. So tell us about what you found. It's a large mass of water, but that's not all it is. So what else did you find out there? So it's a large quantity of water vapor that's in a quasar that's 12 billion light years away from Earth, meaning that the light had to travel for 12 billion years to get to us from the quasar. A quasar is a supermassive black hole that's surrounded by an accretion disk of material, some of which is falling into it. It gets heated up through friction and it glows. In this case, it's heated water vapor bright enough that we can see it. The discovery is significant for a couple of reasons. One is that the quantity of water vapor is very large. It is equal to about 125,000 times the mass of our sun, or about 40 billion times the mass of the Earth. Or if we could condense all the water vapor into liquid water, it could fill the Earth's oceans more than 100 trillion times. So it's a substantial amount. Yeah, those are staggering numbers. And so that's part of the story. Another part is that this quasar is so far away that when the light was emitted from it that we observe now, the universe was only 1.6 billion years old. That is 1.6 billion years after the Big Bang. And so this makes this the earliest detection of water vapor in the universe. We've known about water vapor and water ice in the solar system and in the Milky Way where stars are forming before and even in nearby galaxies. But no one has discovered it this far away. And the implication is that it could be present in lots of places because there's so much of it that it may not be unique and the water may be very, very old. That's really exciting. Um, so how common were quasars like this in the early universe? So quasars were very common in the early universe, but they're not so common now. When quasars form, they make these supermassive black holes, which provide their luminosity as material falls into it. And the remnant black holes are left over. Almost all galaxies that we see now, and we can measure the presence of a black hole, we observe that there's one there, a supermassive black hole. Our own Milky Way has a black hole in its center that's about 3 million times the mass of our sun. It's not accreting anything right now, though, so it's in an off state and we don't see it. The Milky Way probably did not have a quasar, but it did have an active galactic nucleus, and so it had an accretion and a jet and maybe some water vapor of its own. So other early galaxies would have been maybe more similar to, to the, the scenario that you're, you're seeing uh, with this recent discovery. I would say other galaxies could be more similar to it. There's a caveat, though, in that this galaxy is extraordinarily bright, which is one of the reasons we observe it, because it's so easy to, to detect. It's so bright that, in fact, uh, it's about 7 times 10 to the 15 times brighter than our own sun, which means 65,000 times <laughs> brighter than the Milky Way. And it's gravitationally lensed be, by a galaxy that's along the line of sight between Earth and the quasar. So what happens is light that has left the quasar gets magnified on its way to the Earth, and it makes it appear even brighter. So this quasar is intrinsically extremely bright, and while it may be more representative of early galaxies, those would be the rare, big, bright monsters. So you, you have this quasar on the other side of the universe, and it's in this perfect spot to see uh, the light that's coming from it with this gravitational lensing enhancing that effect. But how do you know that this is water around the quasar? Oh, so that's a very good question. This is a good story, because when my... The lead author on our paper is Dr. Matt Bradford of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. 
And when we first observed the spectrum, the water detection looked so tenuous that I was very skeptical. I wasn't convinced. But the water signature had six different spectral lines present. If we had seen only one line, I think I would have disregarded the detection. But the fact that we saw six, even though they were weak, made it uniquely water. So what we did is we applied for time at another telescope with an entirely different instrument to go and observe the quasar again and see if we could detect the lines with that setup. And we did, at least one of them. And so we confirmed that it's water. There's no other molecular species that it could be. Excellent. So what does it mean to you that there was so much water out there somewhere in the, the, the very early universe? Well, it means several things to me. First of all, there is a lot of water, and it's covering a region that's got a radius of about 2,000 light years. And each light year is about 6 trillion miles in distance, so it's big. So water was likely ubiquitous. It probably wasn't rare. Another thing is that water has oxygen in it. It's H2O. And in the Big Bang, no oxygen was created. And so what this means is that there had to be an early generation of stars that produced oxygen and blew it out into the interstellar medium shortly after the Big Bang. And this begins to challenge theories about how galaxies and stars form because they have trouble predicting stars that are high mass forming that early. So it means that we had early stars and we're pushing these theories to their limits. And uh, and the stars have been able to disperse the, the water out, or the oxygen out, into the interstellar medium. One also can't help but notice that water is an important ingredient for life as we know it. You can't draw a conclusion directly between the presence of water and the presence of life in the universe beyond the Earth, but it is a necessary ingredient, and it's thought-provoking to see that it's been around such a long time and there's so much of it. So does this maybe uh, increase the prospects for finding habitable planets or, or even life somewhere out there? Well, I wouldn't say that this observation increases those prospects, but people are, we now know that there are hundreds of extrasolar planets that have been detected, and there are many more that haven't. And so the next steps are to try to characterize the atmospheres of those planets and see if there's water present. People are designing instruments and telescopes to do that now. It's very expensive. But it's an important question, and I think it's something that will happen in the coming decades. So can you tell us just very briefly about uh, some of the, the new instrumentation that's coming out, uh, some, some of the technological changes that might improve this uh, detection ability? Sure. There are a couple things. First of all, these, uh, this field is being driven by technology right now, by astronomy, astrophysics, in fact, because we need to build ever more sensitive detectors to make our observations. And so it's bringing about a revolution. But the other thing we need is a very, very large telescope. These observations were made with a telescope about 35 feet in diameter. But we have plans to build a telescope in Chile that's more like 80 feet in diameter at the highest, driest site on Earth so that we can detect more molecules and galaxies and learn about the early stages of galaxy formation. All right. Well, Jason Glenn, thank you so much for coming on and telling us a little bit about uh, this mass of water found in the very early universe 12 billion years ago. Um, Jason Glenn is one of the principal investigators on the Z-SPEC telescope that he was just telling us is operated out of Hawaii. We've been talking about his discovery of a gigantic mass of water vapor 12 billion light years away. Jason Glenn is an associate professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado and a fellow of CU's Center for Astrophysics and Space Astronomy.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. The executive producer is Susan Moran. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Blue Sky, Black Death. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Ted Burnham.